Turn with me, if you would, to Nahum chapter 3. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of God's holy word. We'll consider today verses 11 through 19, the second half of this chapter, under the title, One Time Rod, One Time Rod, Assyria or Nineveh, both of them could be referred to as a rod in God's hand, and in fact, they were in Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah 10, 5 through 19 describes judgment that is coming upon Assyria because the one-time rod, that is tool of God's judgment, has turned against him and now is deserving of themselves a rod of judgment. And so we see that God, in this principle then, that God raises up sometimes wicked nations, in fact, to do His will. But that wicked nation will not escape God's judgment. And so the time has come for Nineveh to answer for her sins. Will she repent the first time, like when Jonah preached? Or will she double down in her evil and receive the cup of God's wrath? We find the second is the case this time around. As Nahum proclaims this word of judgment, his oracle of doom, over the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of the nation of Assyria. The aim of this morning's message is, therefore, to expose the weakness of the governments of men and the strength of Christ via the lens of sovereign history. Through the lens of sovereign history in the Scriptures, we can see, we can expose the weakness of the governments of men and the strength of the government of Jesus Christ. Our Messiah, of whom it was said in the book of Isaiah again, that the government is upon His shoulders. Proof that the government is upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ is the destruction of wicked governments who stand against His holy name. And in this case, we see proof in Nahum's prophecy, which came to pass in time, that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. The government is upon His shoulders in the smoldering ruins, in the glowing embers of the once great world-dominating empire city Nineveh and Assyria. And so from this, we can grab great encouragement. We can glean great encouragement, can we not, saints, for our own faith. When it seems like governments of men these days have so much power to look back through the lens of sovereign history and indeed see testimony to the strength of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word and let us consider again Nahum 3, 11 through 19 together. Listen as I proclaim God's holy word this morning. Nahum says, You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you, the sword will cut you off, it will devour you like the locust, multiply yourselves like the locust, multiply like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of the heavens, the locust spreads its wings and flies away. Verse 17, your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts, settling on the fences. In a day of cold, when the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. Verse 19, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. 
for un, upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> the threat of war that was prophesied by Nahum to the city of Nineveh, the threat of war at the gates of Assyria's flagship city would have been dismissed, may I submit, out of hand by the average Assyrian citizen when Nahum was writing this prophecy, proclaiming these truths. After all, Ninevite armies had pushed back the front lines of conflict out to the furthest extremities and reaches of the empire. They were fighting neighboring countries on their own lands rather than on Assyrian territory. Have you ever heard the phrase, the best defense is a good offense? Well, Assyria followed that in their war philosophy. The best defense is a good offense. Always be expanding your borders. Always be inflicting terror. Always be acquiring plunder, land, inflicting fear in the hearts of your neighbors. This was their philosophy of maintaining uh, world dominance and the assurance that their country would have no able opposition to overthrow their walled cities and their fearsome war machine. Have you also uh, heard the phrase, we fight them over there? This is a modern phrase uh, referring to a philosophy of war even in our nation. We fight the terrorists over there so we don't have to fight them over here. One philosophy that we have heard in recent years, say the past 20, is that potential threats to our nation need to be fought overseas. At the furthest extremities, if you will, of the American empire, that assures us peace and security at home. But what did 9-11 teach us? That fateful day when terrorists hijacked airplanes and flew them into symbols of American dominance and power, two towers representing economic influence and vitality. They collapsed. All of a sudden, the collective jaws dropped in American society as we stared in horror, aghast, and disbelief as this picture of absolute destruction before our eyes unfolded. And for a moment, Americans felt unsafe at home, did they not? And this was, the, this was similar to the message that Nahum brought the people. Just because you have successful war campaigns at the extremities of your empire does not mean that God cannot prepare judgment for you right at home. Therefore, do not fear your strong arm, which can be broken by the arm of God in a moment, but fear the Lord. Luke in the New Testament, records the parable of Jesus proclaimed of the rich fool. This is Luke 12, 16 through 21. The fool says to himself, quote, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You could extend this application. So is the nation who lays up treasure for itself, who makes himself strong in war, who is a world-dominating empire, but is not rich towards God. If they violate God's law and they pursue these other policies, they are the fool. And one day of the Lord's choosing, He will require an accounting of this nation. He will say to that nation, fools, tonight your soul is required of you, so to speak. Everything that you have prepared, whose will it be? Well, in the case of Assyria, it was Babylon's. Everything that they had acquired by way of plunder and amassed in the city of Nineveh 
by way of palaces and loot and extreme wealth and gold and riches and all, everything you could possibly imagine the ancient world could boast, that huge treasure stash became the property of Babylon overnight. Why? Because God appointed the Chaldeans to make war against the Assyrians. He was bringing a rod against his former rod that he used, brought destruction, and the fools learned their lesson that their strong tower is no safe defense. There is no safe defense against the Lord of glory. The reasons for their confidence, therefore, Nineveh's confidence, were misguided. Isaiah chapter 10, as we mentioned, describes their international conquest over the centuries, Assyria's international policy over the centuries, three of them to be precise, as a rod wielded in the hand of God Himself. From Assyria's vantage point, however, she assumed herself to be the warrior rather than the weapon. So from God's perspective, the truth is that the nation is a mere weapon or tool in God's hand. As soon as a nation thinks of themselves as a warrior, as the sovereign, wielding the sword, the weapon, the tool, then they, are, then they stand deserving of judgment because they have denied the Lord, the true sovereign over nations, and have said that they can stand beside Him, breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before you, least of all, or not least of all, a nation. Instead of humbly recognizing the success on, their success on the world stage as the hand of God, they, Nineveh and Assyria, boasted in their own strength. Now God re would reveal their vulnerability. God would reveal their weakness. And that's the theme of our text today. The final verses of Nahum draw a sharp contrast to the permanence of God's promises for the believer who trusts in Him. And we can appreciate these reassuring truths of like Psalm 1, of truths that we see displayed in passages like Psalm 1, Psalm 52, and Psalm 92, all the more in light of the alternative. In other words... There are two ways that we can choose, the weakness of the kingdom of man or the strength and permanence of, permanence of the kingdom of God, the vulnerability, inherent vulnerability of idol worship or the longevity of worshiping and serving the one true maker, creator, and sustainer of heaven and earth. Consider our worship text this morning that Mark read to us. We heard from Psalm 92, it is good for us to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name. O Most High, the confession of ultimate superiority, strength, and sovereignty, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. The psalmist goes on to declare that his, the righteous, verse 12, flourish like the palm tree. Notice the illustration of permanence, security, rootedness, stability, longevity, vitality, life, and strength. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar of Lebanon, the greatest of trees in the ancient world, uh, lasting for generations and generations, growing up into the clouds, uh, thriving with sap and life, taking you know, weeks to cut down, no doubt, with the technology of the day. Verse 13, they are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in Him. The ultimate expression of permanence in the Scriptures is the rock, God, the rock, the unshakable foundation. In the New Testament, Paul, Paul describes the church as being rooted and grounded. 
It is a body that is thriving with life and vitality inasmuch as the roots are sent down deep into streams of living water. But it is also an unshakable building and construction, so much so that when the stones are attached to the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, it is a foundation that will not be shaken. The church, therefore, as this pillar and buttress of the truth, is a picture of permanence, something that will last. It, it speaks of the kingdom of God. In a more personal way, this idea of permanence attached to the kingdom of God is illustrated for us in a famous psalm, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. In these first verses of warning, think of the nation of Assyria. Think of the philosophy of Nineveh. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the kings, the priests, the prophets that Nineveh boasts, in their princes, in their shepherds, as it were, nor stands in the way of sinners, those who would worship and serve idols and their own uh, self uh, in their own self-indulgence, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, those who make fun of God's holy word and uh, treat His law as something that can be broken and lawlessly exalt themselves above the knowledge of Him. And it says by contrast, verse 2, but His, that is the righteous man, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. And again, notice the permanence by contrast. What is He like? He is like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, again by contrast, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We will see today in our text as we now move to look at it more closely, how Nineveh and Assyria were like chaff driven away by the summer winds. Chaff is that part of the wheat that is light, and when separated from the kernel, the nutritious part, by the threshing action, the fork uh, pitches the wheat up into the air, and then the wind comes and blows the chaff away. The wheat remains. Which are you? Are you wheat or are you chaff? Depends where you've hitched your hope and, and your, uh, tied your uh, eternal destiny to? Do, do you trust in the ways of man or do you trust in the eternal Word of God? The Word of God is the wheat, the ways of man are the chaff. And there will come a day of threshing and there will come a day of strong winds. The righteous yield their fruit in, the sea, in season. They do not wither, but they prosper, they continue. But the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. Turn with me back to Nahum 3. And let us consider the vulnerability of the wicked as illustrated, demonstrated, and replicated in this text today and a couple of other cross-references. Here's a heading for us. The weakness of man's efforts revealed in the context of God's judgments. So the weakness of Nineveh, that is the vulnerability of Assyria, is revealed in these pages, in this proclamation, in this prophecy, in the context of God's judgment. And this is true throughout history. God always reveals the weakness of man's efforts, the governments of man. He reveals them in the context of His judgments. Why? Because when His judgments come, they find those soft targets that man put their faith in. And the Lord targets them with His heat-seeking missiles of truth, of judgment, if you will. 
and he takes out those vulnerable defenses. The weak links in the chain are demonstrated by God's targeted attack. And as the nation then implodes upon itself, we see that that which they boasted in was a lie. And in fact, God is the true King of Kings, and their vulnerability is revealed. Again, this is the theme of our text today. Let's see how vulnerability is illustrated in Nahum's prophecy. There are five illustrations we will touch on briefly in verses 11 through 18. First of all, drunkenness. The vulnerability of Nineveh is illustrated by the concept or the comparison of drunkenness in verse 11. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. It says, you also. Who else was drunk like Nineveh will be? Well, we find Thebes is the answer to that question, verses 8 through 10, where Nahum asks, are you better than Thebes, speaking to this proud nation? Are you better than this other nation that was conquered, Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, rampart of sea, water her wall, Cush as her strength, Egypt too? So she had strong geographic defenses. She had strong allies in the region. She had prosperity and everything this world could boast as a powerful, influential nation. But she was overcome, verse 10. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. If you think of drunkenness, what do you picture in your mind? A loss of your better judgment, a stumbling around, a sort of foolishness, The influence of an outside force causes a suspension in your rational faculties. Bad decisions um, and irrational behavior lead to poor consequences. Foolish and psychotic thought and action, acting against your better judgment. When God reduces a nation, takes away even their rational faculties, when He introduces confusion into their culture, A once great nation can have piles and piles of gunpowder and tanks and armored vessels and aircraft carriers. But if they are too drunk to steer the ship, their weapons become their own destruction. They sink a whole army with them, with one drunk captain. They command a platoons to their death by one bad decision when a leader, a general under the influence can't think clearly. You see, the Lord exploits the vulnerability of certain key factors in a nation, and He does so by reducing, sometimes, their most influential leaders to fools. In Nahum 1, verse, or chapter 1, verse 2, says, The Lord is jealous and an avenging God. He is avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies goes on in verse 4 to ask this rhetorical question, who can stand before his indignation? When God is angry, when God is mad at you, no one can stand, is the answer, of course. He asks the question another way, who can endure the heat of his anger? Yet again, his wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Often in the Scriptures, there's this picture of God's wrath as a cup being poured out. Force-fed, if you imagine a captor or uh, someone in exile in a country that was forced to drink a cup of something like a sedative or a poison, 
The Lord will take, He will pull down the lips of the rebellious. He will dump, as it were, a cup of His wrath into them. And as a nation, this picture uh, shows how He can, by that means, put them under the influence of something else. His wrath reduces them to a state of drunkenness, if you will, and illustrates, exposes their vulnerability. Second picture, ripe figs. Again, Nahum 3.12. All your fortresses are like fig trees. With first ripe figs, if shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. The vulnerability of Nineveh is illustrated not just by drunkenness, but by this picture of ripe figs. Ripe figs, uh, there are two things illustrated here at least. They are desirable and also easy to plunder. If there's a fig tree, the picture is this, and you come upon it in season. The figs are perfectly ripe. They're ready to be picked. They begin to loosen their hold on their twigs. And if you were to stand by that tree and bump it or to shake it a little bit, pretty soon it would be raining fruit upon your head. And those figs that were perfectly seasoned, uh, sweet to the taste, easy pickings, literally, would fall all around you. And this is a picture that illustrates the vulnerability of Nineveh. The Lord can turn a nation... He can ripen them for judgment, as it were, such that their neighbor, even weaker, uh, much lesser, less to boast, can come and shake that proud tree. And when it is his season for judgment, suddenly the fruit of that nation falls in a moment and it is gobbled up by those who seek to plunder the ones who once plundered. As we have spoken of in other pictures in the book, the predator has now become the prey. Drunkenness, ripe figs. Revelation 6.13 speaks to the same principle in similar picture language. Borrowing both from this picture of ripe figs and of apocalyptic language, we read the following of a coming judgment of the Lord prophesied in John's revelation. It says, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. There is this creation or cosmic language that is often used in apocalyptic literature in the scriptures, and it's highly symbolic and representative. And scholars have noted that even across the flags of the earth, it's common to see stars, moons, celestial bodies to this day. Therefore, many times in the scripture, stars would represent nations. So we have in this picture language, therefore, a good case can be made to interpret Revelation 6, uh, 13 as speaking to the nations themselves, ripening like fruit, and then on God's shaking, they all collectively fall from the sky. Again, the vulnerability is pictured in both Nahum's prophecy and John's vision of the vulnerability of nations when God chooses His time to intervene. Third picture, vulnerability, vulnerability illustrated, we have in Nahum 3, 13. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. In this case, the uh, soldiers, the fighting body, the uh, standing army is referred to in terms of those who would be vulnerable and untrained for war. Your women or your soldiers are like women in your midst. 
what this refers to is that, the, that women who normally, under ordinary conditions, are not prepared for the rigors, the demands of strength, and the training that war demands, uh, they would be reduced and, and devastated in just a moment. A, a, a historical picture of this uh, that is similar would be a crusade uh, back in the Middle Ages that was waged with children, a foolish endeavor indeed. But a thinking they had divine reason to be, or a, a divine reason to be successful. There was a, an entire crusade of children that was organized in the medieval ages, and you can imagine the outcome when they clashed with the hardened forces of young men trained for battle, battle-hardened warriors of the uh, Islamic forces in the Middle East. They were utterly devastated. In this picture, we see the mismatch of forces. Those who are not trained for war coming up against those who are, and there's utter devastation. Annihilation is what can be expected. And this is a striking prophecy indeed because the troops of Assyria were more highly trained and better fortified than any other nation at the time could boast. They had the most advanced technology. They had the most experience. They had the most uh, successful campaigns to boast, arguably out of any of the world's nations or empires at the time. But the Lord showed His vulnerability, <clears throat> showed the vulnerability of this nation in reducing their troops to the equivalent of an untrained force. Where in a short amount of time, they might as well have all been women or all been children unprepared for this clash of arms when they are overrun. The vulnerability of Nineveh illustrated drunkenness, ripe figs, women soldiers, thirdly, crops and locusts. We continue to see this language compounding, building this cumulative case of the weakness of man compared to the power of God. Verse 15, there will the fire destroy you, the sword will cut you off, it will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourself like the locust, multiply like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of the heavens, the locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes are like clouds of locusts settling on the fences. In a day of cold, when the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. So two illustrations here, crops and locusts. First of all, he compares the state, the vulnerable state of Nineveh to that which is devoured by locusts. He says, there will, be the, uh, there will the fire devour you. Uh, this fire is an instrument of war, would often burn and devastate cities, and I'm told in the arid conditions of this environment, even the bars of the city gates were sometimes susceptible to fire. And when a nation came and strategically lit these different uh, defenses, then the nation could be overrun. It was similar to a crop that you had stewarded so well all year and just before harvest time. A wave of insects comes in and devours the entire thing. All of your preparations are gone in an hour as the farmer hoping for a harvest. In a similar way, all of your armaments and defenses are destroyed in a huge fire. And in this way, like devouring locusts, uh, like a victims of devouring locusts, the city of Nineveh is compared to a crop that is wiped out by a plague of insects. But he goes on, Nahum does, to use the picture of locusts 
uh, to describe them in, an, in another way. So that is to say, the nation of Assyria and the city of Nineveh were both victim of the locusts and a victim of devastation in spite of the qualities of the locusts. In other words, in some ways, uh, Assyria were like locusts. They were many in number. They were swarmed across the entire land. They had uh, so much that they could boast to destroy their enemies. Their merchants, for instance, for instance, had increased. Their economy was international. Trade was ubiquitous across the land. They had multiplied like grasshoppers, like locusts. More than this, their princes, their influential leaders, those who carried the weight of authority, the command of troops and power behind them and wealth and so on, and influence and scribes likewise, they were like clouds of locusts settling on fences. But notice the picture here. Just one simple change in the weather can steer a cloud of locusts away from an area. Or sometimes a weather event like the rising of the sun after the cool of the night is enough to scatter these little insects. These insects settled on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. In other words, by this picture, Nahum is showing that the maximal efforts, that every effort for hundreds of years that Nineveh had put in to their city to multiply their fortifications would prove insufficient to defend against the judgments of God. A mere change in the weather patterns is enough to scatter otherwise destructive forms of uh, destructive swarms and plagues of insects. So it will be in the coming day of the Lord. When God's judgment comes, it's like a change in the weather. And all of a sudden, all of your forces are scattered in a moment. We saw this, did we not, in the history of Isaiah's record. When Hezekiah intercedes, the people pray, and Sennacherib and Rabshakeh company are threatening Jerusalem, 185,000 soldiers strong, and in one night, the angel of the Lord slays them all. Wake up in the morning to killing fields. 185,000 dead Assyrians, like locusts that were wiped out, this cloud that was descending upon the city to absolutely ravage it, uh, ravage it, was dispatched in an hour, as it were, when God, like a change in the weather, weather patterns, dispatched His judgment at His appropriate time, and the armies that Assyria boasted were destroyed. Final picture of vulnerability, sleep and sheep. Verse 16, 18. Nahum goes on to say, Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There are few things more vulnerable than a sleeping guard. There's a few positions in your life and consciousness when you're more vulnerable to attack than when you are literally asleep. Think of all those movies you watched or uh, the plot element of a suspenseful film or war battle campaign when a prison break is staged in the dead of night when the guards are sleeping. So long as the guards are asleep, you can steal away, you can come in. A small number of people can do great havoc to a city. The guards fall asleep at the city gates, the men wriggle through with torches and flame. They begin to set the entire city alight. And uh, as a consequence of the watchmen asleep at the switch, the entire city can be destroyed by just a couple 
by just a couple villains or a couple attackers in a scenario like this. And this is what Nahum proclaims, that the shepherds are asleep. They will be stupefied. They will be made drunk by God's influence. Uh, they will lose their sharpness and alertness. And under these conditions, they will be overrun. And more than this, it says, your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. Your shepherds are asleep. Your people are scattered. And again, in nature, there are a few things more vulnerable than a herd animal separated from the flock or from the herd. Uh, it is said that on the plains of Africa, when a zebra is isolated, it doesn't matter how fast or strong he is, he's easy pickings as prey for the predator, for the lion. If a lion can isolate an animal from the herd, he can absolutely dominate them in just a matter of moments take them out. And in the same way, the scattering of the peoples of Assyria is like that, making them vulnerable to attack. Sheep without a shepherd, without the safety of the flock, without the fortifications of their enclosure are absolutely uh, easy pickings for the predators, for the lions to come in and ravage them. So in this way, the weakness of man's effort in the context of God's judgment is illustrated poetically by these pictures of vulnerability. That's what we see Nahum proclaiming. Now let's see in these same passages how Nahum demonstrates the vulnerability more specifically. In other words, who are the sources of their perceived strength? What are the sources of their perceived strength? Who are the shepherds? What are the fortresses? And we'll spend less time on this, but what specifically are the points where, or the areas where Assyria once trusted in that God will now target and exploit their vulnerabilities? There are five of them, may I suggest. The military, infrastructure, economy, government, and education. Let me list those for you again and think of our nation today, any nation in fact. You don't think the scriptures of thousands of years ago are relative to today? Ask yourself this question, how much do these five play into the confidence of modern man? Military, infrastructure, economy, government, and education. Do we live in a nation that places faith in any or all of these? Absolutely we do. Do these five elements not color in some way or shape in some way virtually every political campaign, every two years or four years, whatever the election cycle is? People who make great promises for greater military, stronger infrastructure, more thriving economy, better government, better education? Absolutely. But the vulnerability of Assyria was exploited in these five areas. Notice verse 13, as we've read. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Recall the previous chapter, chapter 2, verse 13. Targeted judgments of the Lord in this language, poetic language. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. What's the first thing God says He will do? I will burn your chariots in smoke. Not too much imagination to realize that's a targeted attack against the military of Nineveh. The vulnerability of Nineveh will be exposed when God destroys their fighting force, when He burns their chariots, when He routes their ability to make war. Secondly, infrastructure. There is a taunting call to reinforce their walls and to build their siege towers. As we have seen already in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, the Lord has proclaimed in this warning and taunting language, man the ramparts. The scatterer has come up against you, it said, man the ramparts, Watch the road, dress for battle, collect your strength. In similar language, verse 14, chapter 3, 
draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts, go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. If you knew what was coming and you were trusting in your fortresses, you will soon find that they're futile and frail. And so if you're going to trust in them, then you better get out there, stomp out the mortar, bake more bricks, build your walls. This is warning language. It's taunting language. Of course, these efforts would be futile, but it's satirical. It's a call to the people, okay, you trust in your walls, you better go build them twice as thick because in a week you'll be overrun by your enemies, let's say. Well, of course they can't do so in a week. And the futility of their efforts is demonstrated in the satirical call to man the infrastructure. Draw water for the siege. What does this mean? You better store up provisions because your walled city will be surrounded. There's going to be a standoff and you will retreat to this defensive position until you're starved out by the enemy armies. If you, as soon as you're out of water, you're as good as dead within your walls. Strengthen your forts. These are the areas of fortified positions, of course. Go into the clay, tread the mortar. So may, uh, grab for yourself cement, if you will. Mix it together. You better reinforce, tuck point those walls. Take hold of the brick mold. That's a, a mold for making bricks. You better go out there and stamp out more bricks as fast as you can. Build your walls thick because a day of destruction is coming upon you. The vulnerability of the infrastructure of the land of Assyria would be demonstrated shortly. The gates of the land, the bars of the gates would be set ablaze. The siege towers of their enemies, no doubt, would come and breach the walls and today, Nineveh is nothing but ruins. And it was made so by God's, judgment, God's hand of judgment in the attacks that came upon them in this way. Thirdly, military infrastructure economy. Verse 16, you increase your merchants more than the stars of heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Now, Nineveh and Assyria were so successful in their efforts and so widespread in their influence that, and the relative peace that they secured within their borders, it allowed for free trade and merchants to grow very rich by exchange of goods and services across a broad expanse. But as soon as the circumstances were destabilized, as soon it was, as it was no longer safe to trade in Assyria, the merchants flew away like a cloud of locusts to a place where their money would be better, where their efforts would be better served, their money would be better spent. In a moment, the economy was destroyed. Thirdly, or fourthly, government, princes and shepherds. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold when the sun rises and they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria, your nobles slumber. Of four terms that refer to leaders in government, princes, shepherds, king, and nobles. And all of these likewise are compared to small, tiny insects who in a strong wind can be blown away, scattered, never to be seen again, immediately removed from their influence, much like Thebes. What happened to their mighty men? Well, after their infants were dashed in pieces, in verse 10 of the same chapter, the head of every street, the destruction continued. For her honored men, lots were cast. People were gambling on the slave markets for the, for the dignitaries, the elite, the leaders of Thebes. And all her great men were bound in chains. So all who had power and influence a moment ago now were war trophies for the conquering horde. That was Thebes. And now Nineveh would experience the same thing, things among their shepherds, kings, nobles, and princes. Finally, education. Their scribes, too, are described in verse 17 like clouds of locusts settling on the fences. 
Yet in the day of cold, the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Thus, the vulnerability of this nation is demonstrated when God shows the weakness of their military, their infrastructure, their economy, their government and education. Soon, they would have no visible reason to trust in any of these. Some trust in chariots, we read recently, and some in horses. But who do we, the people of God, trust in? The military, infrastructure, economy, government, education? No. We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. When the dust of judgment settles, He is the only one left standing. He is the only one. Jesus Christ, the King of kings. When the dust of judgment settles on this whole earth and all His kingdoms that rise like stars, only to be dashed like ripe figs, He is the only one left standing. Will you stand with Him today? Now, in our day, these other factors seem more imposing, seem more powerful, and Christians seem marginalized and mocked and, and, and rendered to a small corner to do their thing in culture. Do not be fooled. Do not be fooled. Though Christians are marginalized, though Christ's name is besmirched, though His glory is trod underfoot by a proud and arrogant nation, those circumstances will not continue indefinitely. God will not suffer the idols of military infrastructure, economy, government, and education to be lifted up above Him indefinitely. When the dust of judgment settles, will you stand with Christ? Will you be teaching your children the ways of the Lord? Will you be trusting and following Him even if it means that the lucrative opportunities of the economics of our day, some of them are not lawful for you to pursue, so therefore there's more hardship financially in your life? Will you uh, renounce your trust in government that the next election will be the most important election in our entire life and we've got to put all our eggs in one human, uh, humanistic basket again and all the Christians get freaked out because we might, it might just be the end of liberty in America if we don't vote for X, who, may, who probably will not be a godly man unless extreme repentance comes across this nation, which we so need. How about your infrastructure, your make-work projects, the money that's promised to the trillions of dollars to be confiscated from the productive class, reinvested into roads and bridges, the military that traps these all around the globe as if we own the place, no, we must stand with Christ. And if we do not, when the dust of judgment settles, we will be found to be the dust itself. But there is a kingdom that will never fail. And to this kingdom, we owe our allegiance as true Christians. Men of this kind of caliber that we read about in Nahum are ubiquitous today. They are respected in their fields. They are granted de facto prophet status. They are leading American sheep into the promised future of prosperity and everything else and security. I think of these kind of men, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, who is literally called the Oracle of Omaha. That is a blasphemous title as if he is so smart and wise in his financial dealings that he can see into the future and hope and prosperity are invested in great experts like him, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and the like. These, it strikes me, these CEOs, engineers, and entrepreneurs are among the most celebrated quote-unquote prophets of today. This to illustrate that the terms that Nineveh, or that the ideas that Nahum called out Nineveh for are ever-present among us right now. These types of influences people look at as more important than the Word of God. More important than the Word of God. Oh, and they're so stupid. I mean, pardon me this rant. 
Elon Musk is telling us in order to save ourselves, we've got to colonize Mars. That is idiocy. There is salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Do you think we can transcend this earth? Do you think there's hope to be found in the cosmos? You know, just before he died, who was it? Stephen Hawking was telling us that the only hope for mankind is to colonize in the furthest reaches of space because sooner or later, you know, whatever, artificial intelligence will be our undoing. Is there salvation in a genius who tells us somewhere out there is salvation? Only man's efforts and technology can achieve it, and you better get busy doing it, trusting in military infrastructure, economy, government, education. All these things will collapse. We see through the course of history, vulnerability replicated. Last point this morning. We'll cover this more in our next message, so we'll just touch upon it momentarily. I did a little family research, pro- or research project and family worship, so to speak, last night. I asked the kids, what are some examples in biblical history where a nation that appeared really strong was shown to be weak in a moment? Uh, Israel suggested the Tower of Babel. Read on your own time, Genesis 11, 4 through 9. He's exactly correct. All it took was for God uh, to inflict drunkenness, as it were, confused languages, and the people were scattered, literally scattered. Same forces at play. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Jack suggested, another good suggestion. You remember him, Daniel 4, 30 through 33. He was boasting in his own strength, and he was not acknowledging the sovereignty of God. And uh, he changed his diet. Uh, he, he immediately started eating grass, lost his mental capacity, was reduced to a state of drunkenness, as it were, and for a long period of time was basically a brute beast. Until what? He confessed that uh, God was the true sovereign and he served at his pleasure. So Nebuchadnezzar had a new diet of grass when God showed up in his judgment. Um, and then I find this one particular this is one of my favorites. In Acts 12, 20-23, Herod... Herod uh, had imprisoned the apostles, and then he began to be celebrated by people who sought him as an agent for peace. They said, oh, behold, the voice of a God, behold, the voice of a God, after an impressive speech. God slew him immediately, and the worms had a new diet. The worms ate Herod alive, or ate Herod's dead body, I should say. These are all examples in history where the vulnerability of Nineveh was replicated in Babel, in Babylon, and even in Herod's kingdom. But the most powerful expression of God bringing down an enemy is in the cross of Jesus Christ himself. Um, A prelude to this, David and Goliath. Uh, Goliath was the celebrated champion, 1 Samuel 17, uh, Goliath, excuse me, celebrated champion, 1 Samuel 17, 46 through 53. Well, all that it took was the Lord to exploit the vulnerability of that one giant. And when he was... Uh, when he was slain by his appointed son, by his appointed king, a future king David, immediately the Philistines were routed and scattered and God's people gained the victory. Genesis 3.15 prophesied that there would come a seed of the woman whose heel would be bruised, but he would crush Satan's head. And this was fulfilled in Matthew 27.50-54. The vulnerability of Satan's own skull was exploited when Christ died on Calvary. Counterintuitive to the eyes of man, yet sin and the grave were defeated in that one act in history. And that act was demonstrated, or the power of that act was demonstrated in Matthew 27. The veil was immediately ripped, graves were immediately opened, and the dead came to life. And as it were, so did you and I. 
the death of Jesus Christ, wielded great power, exploited the vulnerability of Satan himself. And in this way, though our sin was our greatest enemy, though Satan seemed to have such a crushing hold on our souls, much like Nineveh did on the entire known world at that time, the Lord demonstrated his superiority and power, exploited the weakness of our enemy, triumphing over him in the cross. The final verse of Nahum, Nahum's prophecy, verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. The day would come where as far as the tyranny of Assyria reached, so would the news of their overthrow and the celebration of their destruction by those who had been destroyed or oppressed by their rapacious hand. And the day will come in history when God shakes the ripe figs of all the nations of the earth, when we, the triumphant warriors in Christ, ride behind Him, we celebrate the destruction of any nation, Babylon collective, if you will, that has reared its ugly head above the Lord. The shepherds of Assyria are drunken sleepers. They are scattered in a moment. The rising sun or the slightest breeze will blow them away. And so the shepherds, the kings, the nobles, and the princes of America are the same. But there is one shepherd above them all. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Notice permanence. He makes me lie down in green pastures. There's peace, there's security. He leads me beside still waters. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell, dwell, live secure in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 declares that the Lord Jesus is our true shepherd. And all who follow him will join with the downtrodden rejoicing the day when humanistic, tyrannical regimes of this world are obliterated in an hour. Praise the Lord. He is glorified in all, act, in all activities in history, the salvation of His people and the destruction of the wicked. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank You for Your power and Your glory seen even in these pages of old where the vulnerability of Your enemies is exposed and exploited. Thank You, God, for Your power to save us from our enemies and to save us unto eternal life in You. Lord, teach us to value all the more and trust in you all the more as a consequence of your word proclaimed in our ears today so that we might be found praising your glorious name when you bring this nation either to repentance or to judgment and every nation one day until you redeem for yourself from them all a tribe, a nation, but from every tribe and nation a people who will show forth your praise and your glory in the redeemed earth. Lord Jesus, new heavens and new earth forevermore. Let us look forward to the day in faith, knowing that you are our Savior and our conquering Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.